Welcome. Welcome to the um, Friday Q&A. Because sometimes I get the name of the thing I'm doing wrong. But I'm bringing to you live for the first time in like, I don't know, two months, one of my cats. This is Moxie. She uh, decided to start sitting on the chair again. And that's her right there. Let me see if I can increase the brightness. Anybody who doesn't want to see this, just skip ahead if you're watching the replay. Make it a little brighter. Oh, that's going to just look weird. Anyhow, there's the kitty. She is... Needs a haircut, actually. Um, or else when she goes to the bathroom, strange things happen. Okay, question number one today. Uh, biblically thinking about everything, not feline thinking about everything. So... Question one is, what are your thoughts about biblical numerology? Biblical numerology, are certain numbers in scripture intended by God? That's an important part of this question. Intended by God to carry hidden theological significance for us to find, or is this a man-made and potentially dangerous thing to look for while studying? And my answer is going to be, it's mixed, okay? On this issue, it's mixed. And I know you guys are all loading your questions. I'll take 20 questions from your chat. I'll let you know when the questions are full so you don't have to keep putting them in. I know it's a bummer to put in a question or not have your answer. Uh, we just do the best we can. But what I'm going to do is actually show you an article. This is on um, crossexamine.org, which I think is a good website. Although I think this article demonstrates what I would consider to be a problem with the numerology perspective. Um, before I get into that, though, let me say I do think that numbers matter in the Bible and they matter a lot. But I think that we have kind of turned this into sort of a you know what I mean? Let me let me explain. There is like the Ninja Turtles movie, okay, from back when I was when I was just a boy, and then there are the the um, the spinoffs, the, the ones that come later, this, this the third fourth film and stuff, and it just starts to get go downhill. Or maybe a better example, of this would be like the Aladdin cartoon. Okay, the Aladdin cartoon when I was a kid, they they did like a sequel, the second the third one, and then they no longer had Robin Williams. Forgive me for doing a pop culture reference here. They no longer had Robin Williams doing the voice for the genie, which of course, why bother at that point? Um, and they had other people coming in to play the characters, and the writing was not as good, and the artwork was not as good, and it was like, ooh, this isn't really Aladdin. That's how it felt. So when I see modern people do numerology about the Bible, like they try to look for meanings in, in the numbers, I feel like, oh, that's not like the authentic thing. Like it's there's a real thing here, but what I often see popularly portrayed doesn't feel like the real thing, doesn't feel legit. So an example in the Bible of a number that matters is seven. The number seven matters. Okay, so seven, we, we will often hear people say seven represents perfection, seven represents completion. Well, you know, the, the week is set up in a seven-day cycle, and that's not just coincidental, right? Because there's other things like, say, music. We have seven notes that completes an octave, or at least the eighth note is the, is the new octave, rather, but seven is a full octave. Okay, that's true, but but this is not really Eastern music, and this is more of man's, you know, I wouldn't put that on the Bible. Okay, the Bible doesn't suggest that we should organize music that way. So the weeks, though, ah, that's biblical. That's in Genesis. This is in God setting the foundation. So seven has that connotation, biblically speaking, it seems. It's also used even in the book of Hebrews. We have in Hebrews... Um, where he talks, I think it's chapter four, it talks about the seventh day. And you'll notice in some translations, the word day is in italics because it just says seventh in Greek. Why do I say that? Because the word seventh is being used in Hebrew to represent rest. The day itself is implied by the number seven, which means rest. Okay, so there's like an implication there that seven means rest. Seven is rest. You rest on the Sabbath. But things go too far. So here's an example of things going too far because this is, I think, the bigger danger for us 
we would go too far with things. So in one of these numbers lists, this is on an article on crossexamine.org, this is the number 17. And they suggest, um, oh, and the name of the article is a Reference Guide to Biblical Numerology. Um, and uh, no, no offense to cross-examine, like I love you guys, I just, look, we can talk about these things openly, right? Like we can discuss, hey, I think I take ob objection to that and not, not feel like it's a personal thing. So number 17 is suggested implies victory. Now the author of this article says that when he writes implies, he's not saying it's for certain, he's saying that it's, you know, it's, it's implied, it's more likely than not, that 17 represents victory. Now what I'm gonna think is that when I see the number 17 in scripture, I should think God is saying something through the number being present in the text about victory. Here's how he would justify the claim. The prophetic beasts of Daniel and Revelation representing world powers will have seven heads and ten horns, totaling 17. They will be overcome by the power of God. Well, this seems kind of strange to me. For one thing, I've only got one reference for 17. How, how do, if 17 means this wherever you find it or in other places, I would want more than one reference for it, right? That would be understandable to ask for because you're looking for meaning there. But also, why victory? I mean, you know... It could represent world powers then, if the seven heads and ten horns could represent world powers. Couldn't it? It could represent end times. It could represent prophecy, God's prophetic control. It could represent rebellion against Christ. Like, it could represent anything you wanted to because it's too vague. Another example of this is um, the number two. And if you'll notice here, uh, two is suggested that it symbolizes. Now, when this author suggests, okay, when, when I say symbolizes, I mean, like, this is pretty secure. Like, this is what the number two means in scripture. It symbolizes the duality of man, the duality of man consisting of both spirit and flesh. I wonder where he puts soul on there. Um, but okay, so man has spirit and flesh and the reference is Genesis 5, 16 to 18. Let's, let's look at this real quick. Genesis 5, 16 to 18. And this is in, uh, I'm currently in the New King James. Um, after he begat, begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and am I, is that really the reference he had there because I haven't looked this up yet I'm looking it up with you yeah 16 through 18 okay um he lived 30 years and had sons and daughters so all the days of Mahalalel were 890 years and he 95 years and he died then Jared has kids and he dies okay this is obviously a, a mis uh, um oh it's Galatians <laughs> it's Galatians look I'll show you it was totally my mistake the article says Galatians not Genesis you guys probably all caught that I was like Galatians Genesis Okay, so um, here's what I'm looking for in the text. I want to see where the number two has this meaning, not just the presence of two things like spirit and flesh. Okay, I say then walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, so there's a, a, there's a dual duality of, of you know, uh, battle that goes on within us. Um, for this, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And it's two, these uh, are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. But there's nothing here in the text that says that the number two now carries the meaning of spirit versus flesh or of the duality of man, right? Like we're just noticing that man is, man is, you know, having a struggle between two things, the spirit and the flesh. There's nothing there that tells me that that's the meaning of that word when I go to other places in scripture. Then he goes on with the number two and says, okay, the number two also represents, here's another representation, the union of two parties. Okay, well now it's not about duality, it's about two being two coming together perhaps as one, right? The verification of two witnesses. Okay, well then, then it could be about evidence and proof maybe. The union between Christ and the church, so it could be about redemption, salvation, and, and being joined to, to God. 
and it represents the Old and New Testament. In other words, it represents everything and nothing. That's the problem with numerology. The way we do it in our in our Aladdin 2 version, Aladdin 3 version, is that it's like, come on, this isn't consistent. You can't like open your Bible and see the number 2 occurring in places and go, here's what it means to me. Here's how I sh here's how it should adjust my understanding of a passage. Uh, no, this seems very um, random and and, un and inconsistent and unreliable if we're going to use this. It can also represent comparison and contrast between two things. No scripture to support this. There are a verification of two witnesses. There's biblical passages for that. The unity in Christ and the church, all that. But nothing about the number two therein carrying that meaning. Let me go to another one. This is the number seven. And again... Here's a number I think does have meaning. And then I'm going to go to all your guys' questions. Um, seven is one of the most important numbers in the Bible. And, and it definitely has symbolic meaning in Scripture. There's no doubt about this. Okay, two? Mm, I don't know. I like to see a better case for it. Right? 17 or 14 or something? Eh. But seven, definitely. Okay? Um, he says it symbolizes completion, perfection, and rest. I definitely agree with the good potential to see that in there. But we're going to see that this gets a little bit fishy as we go on. Uh, God finished creation in seven days. There are seven great land masses. Okay, this is a biblical thing. This is where I go to scripture and go, in the Bible, it may be implying seven represents completion, perfection, rest, because God created the world in seven days. And that was chosen by God for various things. Then he gives seven-day cycle to Israel. On the seventh day, they rest. Then in Hebrews, it uses the seventh day of rest analogy to talk about salvation in Christ and how we rest from our labor when we come to faith in Christ. So there's like, okay, that to me is a good case. That doesn't mean that everywhere I find the number seven in the Bible, it means rest. It doesn't mean that. You would need to look at the context to suggest, to see if the author is trying to tap into that that symbolic meaning of seven. That's important. Then it says there are seven great land masses. Okay, well, that's, I mean, okay, seven continents, right? Like, th that's fine, but that's not like the Bible's tapping into that. Seven colors of the rainbow. Well, the Bible's not giving us the seven colors of the rainbow, and you could divide those in various ways. At least I think you could. Seven notes make a perfect scale, at least in Western music. Uh, seven days in the feast of in the feast of Passover, seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. That's true, but how does that mean it represents rest? I, that I don't know. Okay, maybe completion. Okay, seven days and it's done. Seven weeks and it's and it's shifted to the next thing. Seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles, same thing. God had seven covenants with humanity. This is actually a very debated theological point. I won't get into it, but um, anyway, <laughs> in Revelation. Now, here's what I wanted to touch on with the seven. The number seven in Revelation appears over and over and over again and definitely is there intentionally. So there's seven uh, churches and there's seven letters to seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven angels, seven spirits of God. You can read it. It's all on your screen there. Um, and if you're on the podcast it's just, you read Revelation, man. It was like seven of everything in there. Now, here's the question I want to ask. Do, does the use of seven of these things represent completion and perfection? I mean, possibly. I don't see how the seven thunders represents completion. I'm not sure how the seven eyes on the lamb represent completion. I'm not sure how the seven letters represents completion. Seven churches, perhaps. So I'm, I'm, I'm like struggling a little to find that rest. I'm not sure. I mean, when all of the sevens of revelation are accomplished, we're in God's eternal kingdom. Okay. So maybe that represents rest in a sense. You could suggest that, but I'm going to suggest there's another meaning with seven here in revelation in particular that we don't get just from Genesis, but 
my okay i could be wrong my you want to talk about numerology my understanding of the numbers here is that seven may represent god's kingdom right because the seven churches are in god's kingdom the seven letters are to the churches that are part of god's kingdom on earth the seven candlesticks represent the churches the t stars the angels represent the ministers or the servants or the messengers to the churches so again they're all part of god's kingdom seven spirits of god is god's um presence in each of the churches so all these are about god's churches which is his kingdom on earth then there's the judgments a bunch of those and they bring in god's uh, kingdom the judgments bring in god's kingdom so i'm going to suggest maybe seven represents god's kingdom um and uh, the kings i don't find a connection there and i'm not going to pretend i do so with numerology stuff yes there's definitely intentional numerology in the bible like no one's going to argue against that i don't think but the question is are we are we taking the fact that it's there and then twist, let me just say, becoming really loosey-goosey in our standards so that we tell people the meaning of all these numbers and then we're reading passages. Here's the danger of it. We read passages of scripture and we're noticing the numbers, but we're missing the passage, right? So you're counting how many sons this person had to find a symbolic meaning to the number of kids he had, but you're not looking at the actual message that the scripture is bringing in that passage. So... Uh, numerology, yeah, its usage so often um, is is very willy-nilly and loosey-goosey. There's another example of like really there in Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew breaks down the genealogy into sets of 14. And so a lot of people are like, why is he bringing it into 14? He doesn't include every name of every person in Jesus's uh, genealogy there. He skips names intentionally. And you could try to like look at the names and think why he's skipping them. It's kind of an interesting study. And I have some guesses as to why, but he, but he skips names. And so he gets three sets of 14, you know, and, um, he, he uses David twice. He uses him in the second and third set, David. I think it's the second and third set. He uses him. Um, I think it, maybe it's the first second. I'm, I'm blanking on that. And anyhow, what's interesting about David is Jesus is the son of David. That's a theme in Matthew's gospel. He's the, he's the inheritor of the prophetic prophet, the prophecies in the old Testament. He's the King of Israel, right? The son of David. That's a focus in Matthew's gospel and David, um, the, the name David using Hebrew, you know, numbers to, you know, you would use letters to equal numbers. His, his name is 14. So you've got 14, 14, 14, David used twice to help establish the number 14 to point to David being this Jesus being the son of David, who is the fulfillment of all that. So that's there. That's not like so much a secret mystical thing as much as it is an intentional messaging. That's what I want to look for with numbers. Intentional messaging, not secret, super vague, mystical stuff. And question number two, <laughs> right? Uh, Blue Curtain says, do we still have scars and such in our new bodies? Like when Jesus was resurrected, he still had his crucifixion marks. Was that just for God's purposes? Thomas, um... Or is it a sneak peek into our new body? All right, Blue Curtain. So your question here is about um, scars. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, okay, if, if we take our intuitions, which are helpful and, and equally dangerous, but they are helpful in life. And we say, what would I my intuition be about my new body in heaven? Is that my glorified body that that according to first, well, let me come back to first Corinthians later. My thought is that I'd be perfect, that I would not have any scars or any wounds or any sort of hindrances that are not that are that are hindering the perfection of that new body including a scar um so th that that would seem to be what would i would naturally intuit but then you have jesus here having scars after his resurrection now 
you can have a discussion. One one person might say, hey, well, he was resurrected, but he wasn't yet glorified. And perhaps it was during his glorification after he ascends, after his 40 days on the earth, that that was when that would those scars would be gotten rid of. Um, then others would push back and say, but in Revelation, Jesus, says, he, he looks like the lamb who had been slain. And uh, anyway, I'm not going to enter into that debate. I feel like we don't have enough data to go on. Okay, that's my conclusion is the Revelation lamb thing is, there's tons of stuff he's seeing. Jesus is the land with seven eyes. Like, we don't actually think he has seven eyes. It's a lot of symbol, symbolic representation there. So, 1 Corinthians 15, though. 1 Corinthians 15 actually talks about what our what our bodies will be like. So, let me discuss that for a second. And I'm going to lean, I'll tell you now, spoiler, I will lean towards your answer, your suggested answer. Jesus had these marks uh, uniquely as a way of proving who he truly was. He was the one who was crucified. Thomas had said, I won't believe unless I see the, see the nail marks in his hands. Jesus goes, look, touch, this is the nail mark. And so I think that this was about proving who Christ was. I think, however, that, and, and now that may go on to eternity, he may always have those marks, as, a, as and which would be beautiful, beautiful testimony. But I don't think the same is true for us. So let's talk about our future bodies. Um... All right, verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? See, this is the passage, man. This is where I want to go. Foolish ones, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow um, that body that shall be, but a mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Now, this is a farming analogy. He's saying the body that is raised is connected to the body that dies, but it's not going to be raised the same as the one that dies. Like it won't... it won't look the same. It won't be identical in every way to the body that dies. Now, this is important because most of the people who have died believing in Jesus are now bones or less. So if they're raised as bones, that would be a problem. But verse 38, but God gives to a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body, meaning there's some sort of God's going to miraculously bring to us a new body according to his will. All flesh is not the same kind of flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There's different kinds of bodies. Like birds fly in the sky, fish are in the water, uh, men are on the ground along with animals, but they're different than men. They have different bodies than us. Verse 40, there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. Now I think he's talking about heavenly. There's going to be a body that's designed for a different kinds of glory. Um, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of, of the terrestrial is another. A complicated verse I won't get into detail on that Mormonism totally butchers. Um, verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another gl- glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. All that was an analogy to then say, just like you have different human bodies and then these celestial bodies, you have the, you have the stars, you have the, the sun, you have the moon. They're different and your body in the future will be different. The body sown is corruption. It is raised in incorruption. I think that scars and wounds are part of the corruption. Personally, that's what I understand that to be. But it's raised in incorruption, implying we won't have those things. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So he's like, there's a different kind. You're you're not just going to be raised. You're going to be transformed as well. Okay, that I take to be, um, you have had an amputation, you will have that arm back, but better because you'll be exalted, you're glorified. 
you've you've had um, cerebral palsy, you'll be raised without cerebral palsy. You've had um, some sort of deficiency of some kind, you'll be raised without that sort of thing. All of that stuff is part of corruption. And I think scars and wounds are also part of that as well. So th there's my my answer there. Um, you could read on in 1 Corinthians for more details about that. Um, why did Jesus have scars if I'm not raised that way? Well, here Paul comments on our resurrection. Jesus is a model in many ways, but he's unique in that he was the one who bought death, uh, bought uh, salvation and life for us at the cost of his own death. So it makes sense if there's a couple things that are unique about him in his resurrected body. We'll be like him, but won't necessarily be in every possible way identical. 